Mark 6, 45 through 56. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he was dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when he saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, and ran about the whole region, began to bring the sick on their beds, and wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, thank you, John. Let's take a second and pray and ask God to um, help us as we seek to understand this part of his word. Please join me. Our Father, we come before you now and ask that you would come and be at work in our hearts. Help us to believe that these uh, ancient stories that we have recounted for us in the Gospel of Mark are not only true and historically valid and credible, but actually meaningful and powerful to give us new life, new hope, to give us really all that we need even now, no matter what we're going through or facing in life. Father, this morning some of us are finding ourselves in the midst of a storm And so we pray that you would help us to believe and remember that you, Jesus, are always with us in the storm. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. One very well-known hymn that Christians have sang for centuries now is a hymn that we sing here sometimes. It's called, It Is Well. The, The hymn, It Is Well, was written by a guy named Horatio Spafford in the wake of uh, really quite a tragedy in his own life. It was in the late 19th century, and he was an investor in Chicago, and in the great Chicago fire of 1871, he lost almost everything. And as his family was still in recovery, two years later, he sent his wife and four daughters on a trip by boat across the Atlantic Ocean to spend some time in Europe where he was going to attempt to raise some capital to continue his business efforts. He stayed behind because he had some work to tie up before he came across with them. And as his daughter and four children were sailing, another boat struck their boat and sank within 30 minutes. His four daughters drowned and were killed and his wife barely survived. After she arrived to a safe place on the land, she sent her husband, Horatio Spafford, a telegram famously just saying this, saved alone, saved alone. It was a horrific moment, obviously, for Spafford. And in the wake of that tragedy and that emotional devastation, he wrote the hymn, It Is Well. One of the great lines of that hymn is, when sorrows like sea billows roll. When sorrows like sea billows roll in my life, it is well. It is well with my soul. 
This story that we've just had read for us is one where the disciples of Jesus, those who are following Jesus, in many ways are facing, well, they're facing literal sea billows coming against them. They can't get anywhere. They're frustrated and discouraged. But part of what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to you and to me as we consider this morning for a few minutes this story is how we react and how we respond when sorrows like sea billows roll in our own lives? How do you feel when you're not making any headway in life? When it seems that everyone and everything is conspiring against you, even God himself. That's one of the things the Bible is asking of us this morning. You ever feel thwarted in your efforts, even when you are working hard to do what is right? If you feel that way, even this morning, you're not alone. That's a large part of the human experience and especially of the Christian experience. But God has spoken, Christians believe, God has spoken to those of us who feel that way from time to time, who might even feel like we are up against the wind, frustrated with nowhere to go this morning. God has spoken to us in this story. And uh, my prayer this morning is that you will be comforted as the gospel comes to us through this amazing story. We're reaching the end this morning of Mark chapter 6, which we spent the last few weeks in. Mark chapter 6 is kind of a rough chapter. I mean, there's some bad stuff going on in Mark 6. Herod cuts John the Baptist's head off. The disciples are kicked out of towns. Uh, They're hungry, they're tired, they're famished. And Jesus continues to expect them to minister and to trust and to rest in him. We saw last week that Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 but the disciples are worn out even as Jesus continues to patiently reveal who he is and what he's all about again and again and again. And so in our story this this morning, Jesus puts his disciples in a boat and sort of kicks them off of the shore out into the Sea of Galilee. And as they're heading out, we find another miracle taking place before us. And the main idea that we want to have communicated to us this morning is simply this. Jesus will be with you in the storm. That's the point of Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Jesus will be with you in the storm. Let me try and break this text down into three parts. First, I want to talk to you about uh, what it's like to be sent into the storm, sent into the storm. Second, struggle in the storm. And third, saved from the storm. Okay, sent into the storm, struggle in the storm, saved from the storm. So first, if you'll look at the story again with me, you'll see that after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus immediately, we read there, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, back across the sea, while he dismisses the crowd and stays behind. Now that word there, made, that's a strong word. I mean, the idea is that Jesus, in some ways, almost forces them against their will to get back in the boat and to bail. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, another gospel, John's gospel, tells us that immediately after Jesus fed the 5,000, in John chapter 6, verse 15, we read that that big crowd, those thousands and thousands of people, wanted to make Jesus king by force, the text says. In other words, these people want a revolution. They want the Roman occupying armies thrown out. They want freedom. They want Jesus to lead them in a political uprising. And that's exactly what Jesus at this point does not want to happen. 
That's, by the way, why already in Mark, a number of times we've seen him, after he's done a miracle, say something like, don't tell anyone what has happened to you. The reason that Jesus does that time and time again is because he doesn't just want to be understood as a political revolutionary. He doesn't want to be understood as one who only came to change the kingdoms of this world up and shuffle the balance of power. And so because there's a threat, according to John, that these people are going to make Jesus king, that these people are going to start a rebellion, Jesus says, we've got to extricate ourselves from this situation, right? We've got to get out of here. Disciples, shove off in the boat. He dismisses the crowd, and then he goes up on the mountain to pray. But the interesting thing that I want to point out for you about this story is this. The disciples of Jesus, in obedience to what Jesus has told them to do, get into the boat, even though they probably don't understand why, they ship off from the shore out into the sea that they had just come across the same day already once, and they go right into a storm. They are sent by Jesus into a storm. And I think there's a really true and important lesson for us here. Sometimes obeying Jesus leads you into a storm. Sometimes when you do what Jesus commands and when you come under his lordship and when you submit to his authority, you find the wind and the waves crashing against the boat that is your life. You know, you find yourself exhausted. You find yourself depleted. You find yourself frustrated. You find yourself tired. I need you to hear this. This is true Christianity. One pastor has written this. If you submit your life to Jesus, you open yourself to an index of sorrows that are unknown to the uncommitted soul. Jesus meant it when he said elsewhere that to follow him means to take up your cross daily and, do, and deny yourself to be his disciple. Jesus sends his disciples in obedience right into the storm, right into difficulty, right into frustration. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, if that's what Christianity is, thanks but no thanks. (laughs) I'm out. Why would I want to intentionally make my life more difficult? If it's true that Jesus is going to send me into the storm, if it's true that following Jesus oftentimes implies more difficulty and more pain, then you can count me out. Thanks but no thanks. And, you know, that makes some sense. If that's where you find yourself this morning, I want you to be affirmed in one sense. That's understandable. I mean, after all, why would we go do something and commit to something that we know is going to bring us a certain degree of frustration and hardship? And, you know, an appropriate question to ask is why does God do it this way? You know, why doesn't he always make our lives easier when we deny the world and obey him? That's a fair question. There's a lot of good answers to that question, I think. But for now, let me say this. God's goal is not to give you an easy life. It's not even to give you an easier life. God's goal for you, rather, is to give you a holy life, a Christ-formed life. God's goal for you is that one day when the storm comes your way, you can truly say by faith in your heart what David says in numerous psalms. My heart and my strength may fail, but you, God, are my portion forever. There is nothing I desire besides you. Oftentimes, God sends us into the storm because that's the only way we are going to grow and develop into the people that he wants us 
to be. You know, exercise is the same way. I haven't been exercising nearly as consistently as I should, but I did go on Thursday or Friday and uh, did a little bit of weightlifting. I'm sure you can tell. And, um, and, you know, it's one of those times when as I'm going up, you can like literally feel all the muscles tearing. I'm like, this is going to be unhealthy. This is not going to be good. Not sure I'm going to go up again, right? Let's move on to the next uh, weight bench. And, and, you know, that's what happens when you've kind of been out of the habit of exercising, of lifting weights or of running or of doing whatever physically strenuous activity you do. And you can even feel literally the, the pain coming, the muscles ripping, but they're doing that so that they will grow back stronger. Really anything in life that is worth doing, anything in life that's going to bring us flourishment, that's going to bring us fulfillment is going to at sometimes be difficulty. That's why the Bible says elsewhere, consider it joy, joy when you face trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So Jesus sends his disciples into the storm. And in a sense, we see a picture there of the entire Christian life. Sometimes obeying Jesus means that we get sent into the wind and into the waves. But let's see what happens to the disciples next. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes or the disciples' sandals, I guess you could say. They're still worn out from their missionary travels that we read about back in chapter 6, verse 30. They've just witnessed this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, yet they're not at all sure what it means. We learn about that there in verse 52. They don't understand about the loaves, Mark tells us. And these guys are, for the most part, experienced fishermen. They've been on this sea, the Sea of Galilee, for most of their adult lives trying to earn a living. But they're physically drained, They're emotionally spent, and they're spiritually confused. It's the middle of the night, Mark tells us, between 3 and 6 in the morning, and they've been going and going and going with no rest, with no time even to eat. And so we see, secondly, the struggle in the storm. That's the bottom line. These guys are struggling The literal wording there in verse verse 48, when it says they were making headway painfully, the literal wording there is that, let me find it, sorry. The literal wording is that they were painting. They were painting in the driving wind for the wind was hostile to them. And to add insult to injury, Jesus, it's clear in the story, knows what is happening to them in the sea. Verse 48 Jesus obviously could see the storm, and it's likely that Jesus could see them. John tells us that they're only a couple of miles out on the water. So the storm and the wind of the waves are visible to Jesus. It's very possible that the boat is visible to Jesus too, and Jesus has sent them right into this struggle. He sent them right into the storm. And he sees them in their struggle, and it seems to them, the disciples, that he doesn't help. Maybe at the first point that he, that he doesn't even care. And they're past the point of expecting his help. By verse 49, when they see him walking out on the sea, they think it's a ghost. They're like, there's no way this could be Jesus. It, it must be a ghost. Jesus isn't going to help us. Here's the idea. In their struggle, doubt begins to creep in. Doubt that God will remember them. They begin to think God has left them. Jesus doesn't care. He's off doing his own thing, praying on the mountainside while they're out working their tails off to get nowhere. A couple chapters earlier in Mark, in Mark 4, when there's another storm on the sea that the disciples are in and Jesus is asleep 
at the end of the ship in the stern. Remember what the disciples said? They said, Jesus, wake up. Don't you what? Don't you care? Don't you care that we're perishing? That's the exact thought that they have here. They're struggling. They can't make any headway. And then it seems like Jesus doesn't care about them. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like you've been left by God in the struggle? You ever feel like that God doesn't see you? Or even worse, that he does see you and that he just doesn't care. Do you ever find yourself saying to God or thinking to yourself, you know, things like this, God, I'm struggling with this marriage. I don't know how to deal with the conflict. I'm tired of the fighting. She just doesn't seem to care anymore. He's just so distant. I want growth. I want to have a healthy relationship, but I don't know what to do. Are you up there, God? Do you care? Do you see my struggle? Or God is just one thing after another. I take one step forward and then it's, it's three steps backward. I need a job. I need a raise. I need my kids to listen. It seems like life is conspiring against me and you don't seem to be doing much. Or, God, I'm tired of being sad. I want to experience joy. I want to experience peace, these things the Bible talks about, but I'm depressed. Most days I don't even want to get out of bed. It's a struggle to smile. Where are you? Or, God, why am I always sick? Why don't the doctors know what to do? Why don't you heal me? Why are my prayers going unanswered? Or, God, I'm all alone. No one cares about me. The people that are supposed to support me have failed again and again. I can't trust anyone. Everyone lets me down. I've been burned too many times. The struggle just isn't worth it. I don't even feel like you're worth it, God. Do you care? Or are you just like everyone else? If you've ever felt that way towards God, or if you feel that way towards God this morning, and I applaud your honesty with him. You're being a real human. And I also want you to listen to the third point. We've seen they're sent into the storm, that they're struggling in the storm, and thirdly, they're saved from the storm. So the disciples are just done, right? They've had enough. They're all out of gas. We read further there, according to Mark, their hearts are hardened. That means, among other things, that at this point, they just don't yet have the capability either spiritually or physically or emotionally, to recognize Jesus for who he is. And they're mad, and they're angry, and they're exhausted, and they're probably tired of Jesus. So what's the resolution? (laughs) What happens? Well, what happens is Jesus comes to them in the storm. Jesus comes to them in the storm. It's not a ghost coming to frighten them. It's Jesus miraculously here walking on the water, coming on the water through the wind, through the waves, through the storm. Jesus comes. And it's amazing. If you read the text carefully, I want you to notice something that might have struck you. Look at what it says there at the end of verse 48. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And then there's a strange little insertion there by Mark. He meant to pass by them. What in the world does that mean? I mean, why is that in the passage? I mean, the idea of the language there communicates intent. Jesus, it seems initially, was intending to walk right by the boat. 
It doesn't just mean he's kind of accidentally looking kind of blindly. Where's the boat? He's intentionally, initially going to pass by. Why? What's going on there? That's weird. Was Jesus just going to, you know, walk by and ignore them through the wind, through the waves? Was he playing a joke on them? Well, we have to take a second and think about that because it's the key to unlocking the whole story. So stay with me. When Mark says there, when he uses the verb that Jesus intended to pass by in reference to Jesus walking on the wind or walking on the water to them, he's connecting the person and the work of Jesus here with a famous story from centuries prior that we find in the Old Testament. In Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Exodus 33, Moses is the leader of God's people. And the people of God are Israel in the Old Testament. And Moses is close to God, okay? He's closer to God than any human since Adam or until Jesus had been. And in this chapter, Exodus 33, after Moses has prayed for Israel on account of their sins against God, he's up in the cleft of a rock or a mountainside, and he asks God something. He says, God, I want you to show me your glory I want you to show me the, the sum total of your character, the fullness of who you are. And God, this is a paraphrase, it, it basically says to Moses, no one can see the fullness of my glory and live. But what I will do is cause my back to pass by. Same word used in Mark 6. I will cause my back to pass by you. And then we see what theologians call a theophany, an appearance of God. Moses sees the backside, so to speak, of God's glory pass by in the cleft of the rock. And what Mark is doing here is connecting what God did then, hundreds of years earlier, with what Jesus is doing now in the New Testament. And it's important because it makes this very simple point. The same one who passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock and showed him his glory is here now on the water, passing by you and showing you his glory. But the disciples don't see him in his glory. They think he's a ghost. They don't get it. They misunderstand who Jesus is. They're afraid. And so Mark takes what happened in Exodus 33 even further. Jesus we see meant to pass by them, just like God passed by Moses. But because they don't get it, he stops and speaks to them. And this confirms, what he says to them confirms the interpretation that Mark is referring to Exodus 33. He says, take heart, it is I. A better translation is take heart, I am. That's the literal translation. And that is the actual name of God in the Old Testament. He passes by in his glory, in a demonstration of his divine power, just like God did for Moses centuries before, but the disciples don't get it. And so he stops and doesn't just show them his glory. He speaks to them his glory. He says, do not be afraid. I am clearly connecting himself with the eternal creator, infinite God of the universe. What we see here is that we only saw the back of God's glory in the Old Testament. It was hidden from people like Moses, but in Jesus, we see the glory of God fully in his face. He is the one who comes to them in the storm and gets in the boat and then uses God's name. But he does even more. 
amazingly. He doesn't just show them the glory. He doesn't just tell them I am. He gets into the boat. And when he gets into the boat, what happens? The storm stops. The wind stills. The waves stop crashing. What's going on? Here's what's going on here. What we are seeing here is that in Jesus, God has determined not just to give you a passing glimpse of who he is. In Jesus, rather, God has shown you the fullness of his character. He answers Moses' request to show me your glory in Jesus. And he doesn't just do it by passing by or by speaking to them from the heavens. He does it by becoming one of us and getting into the boat with us in our struggle, in our frustration, in our futility. What the point of the story is, is that God does not send the disciples And God does not send us into the storm so that he can abandon us. God sends us into the storm, rather, so that we will see him get in the boat of our lives and help. God doesn't ignore you when you struggle in the storm. He comes to you in the person of Jesus and says, do not fear. I will go through the storm to enter into your boat and I will calm the sea and the wind. And Jesus proves that he will always do that for us, not just by walking through this physical storm on the Sea of Galilee and getting into the disciples' boat, but by walking through another storm later in his life. You see, what Jesus is doing in some sense here is prefiguring the ultimate storm that he will face, which is the storm of God's righteous and holy wrath and anger against a world that is full of messiness, brokenness, and sin against our rebellion, against a righteous God. Jesus actually takes that storm upon himself. He walks not just through the literal storm. No, he walks through the storm of our guilt. He walks through the storm of our grace. He walks through the storm of the evil and the pain of this world at the cross. You see, at the cross, Jesus takes on the storm of sin that separates us from God and that breaks this world, and he walks right through it in his death and in his resurrection so that we can be safe. Yeah, Jesus met the disciples in the boat that night, and the winds and the waves stopped. But he was teaching them a greater story that more greatly reveals his glory. He is going to stop every storm against them through his death for their sins on the cross and through his resurrection into life eternal. So what's the bottom line, friends? Here it is as we wrap up. Jesus is speaking to you this morning. And he's speaking to me through this story and encouraging us in this way. He is saying, don't believe the lie and the doubts that God has forgotten you in the storm or that he doesn't care. Jesus came to the disciples in his glory and he has come to you. He faced the storm of God's anger against sin, the storm of this broken world, the storm of our guilt and our fear and our shame, and he has calmed it all in his work for us. And now he is in the boat with you. He is there. So take heart. Do not be afraid. In your worry, take heart. In your sickness, take heart. In your sorrow, take heart. In your fear, 
take heart. In your darkness, take heart. In the storms, take heart. When sorrows like sea billows roll, take heart. Jesus is with you in the storm. He has proven that he will always be with you because he went through the storm of the cross himself. He will never leave you or forsake you. When you feel most frustrated and up against the wind and the waves, that is when he shows himself. Isaiah 43 says this, of God, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you come to us in the storm of life. Father, it is hard for us to believe that that is true when we face the frustration and the difficulty and the pain of living in a fallen world. Father, we thank you that just as you ministered and reached to the disciples in their spiritual confusion and in their hard-heartedness and in their unbelief and in their confusion and frustration, so you minister to us when we find ourselves in the same boat. Father, we thank you that in Jesus you have fully revealed your glory to us. And that you have not just passed by us, but no, you have come to live with us. You've come to be with us as I am who I am, the God of the universe, Yahweh. You are in Jesus incarnate and near. And we thank you, Father, for that. And we thank you that you weren't satisfied just to tell us to settle down and relax. No, you actually take the storm away through the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. Lord, we ask that you would help us to believe these things to confess them to be true both in our hearts and with our lips. We pray, Father, that we would leave this place believing in the gospel and resting in your deep, deep love for us. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.